Today we are landing a plane. Our 50-day spiritual journey is coming to a glorious completion today. And uh, I just want to thank God for all that He has done in our lives through this season. A number of you emailed me back and let me know what God has done and is doing. And uh, I want to give you just a sampling of some of those responses. A lady named D wrote, The Lord was so kind and gracious to me. He gathered me into his arms and asked me questions about why I wanted to be like everyone else. And did I think he could love or accept me more if I were? He got to the root of the issue. I was completely unaware of how my identity had been wrapped up in what I do instead of whose I am. It's good, huh? Scott wrote me back. He said this, I feel God has really used this to open my eyes to a more accurate picture of who he is. Our whole small group has really embraced the concept that it's not about behaving better, it's about believing better. Such a simple truth, but such a paradigm shift at the same time. This realization has given me a new enjoyment of spending time in the Word, praying with my family, and worshiping God. And the cool thing is, I don't feel like I'm doing those things because I should. I'm doing those things because I'm enjoying it. It's a great feeling that has been gone for too long. I'm looking forward to diving further into the richness of the gospel in all areas of my life. Susan wrote, this is going to be my third Easter as a Christian, and I find that I love God on a much deeper level. I'm still blown away and awed and amazed by Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Wow, I'm swimming in the gospel ocean and having a blast. And Jim wrote this, many times I found myself weeping in celebrations as God opened his loving arms to me and manifested his love as I worshiped. All this to say that the past 50 days have been the pinnacle of this journey so far. God has used this letter to the Colossians to slowly strip away some of the dirt and grime that had stuck to my spirit as I wandered through the jungles and deserts of this life. And then a young lady wrote this, Recently I've been in a season of walking through hurt and disappointment, And God has used many, many things, including our celebrations at church, to teach me what it looks like to walk through that kind of season. It's been good coming to church and continually hearing the truth that it's not about me, it is all about Jesus. And because of his amazing grace, I am able to stand complete in him. Well, she got it, huh? That's that's good stuff. Well, I hope and pray that the Lord has spoken to your heart during this 50-day journey, and that Jesus has become even more precious to you, more central to your life. We hope to have similar emphases again uh, various times in the future and trust the Lord to do a, a deeper work in our hearts as we focus, give focused attention to Jesus Christ. All right, here's a question for your consideration this morning that arises out of the scripture that we'll be looking at. Have you ever been on the receiving end of spiritual intimidation? You say, what is that? Well, have you ever felt judged because you didn't measure up to someone else's standards of spirituality or kept their religious rules? That's spiritual intimidation. Have there been people in your life who kind of looked down on you and made you feel unspiritual Because you weren't doing what they were doing or doing it exactly the way that they were doing it. Have you ever been made to feel that you were still kind of floundering in nursery school while this other couple or this other family or this other person had apparently arrived at the pinnacle of spiritual success? Have you had people in your life, friends, fellow church members, maybe even pastors, 
who made you feel like a second-class Christian because you hadn't had the experience that they had. Well, if you've ever had people judge you based on their standards or made you feel inferior to them, then you know what spiritual intimidation is. You've experienced that. That's the subject we're looking at in our study of Colossians today as we come to the end of chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. And we'll dive into that in a moment. And just thinking about this, I recalled something that happened, I think it's been about 10 years ago now. A particular family started to attend church here. And I remember having this weird sense about them when I first met them. They were invited by a couple in our church who were church members. They'd been befriending each other. And I remember after the husband talked with me for about five minutes, I sensed that they had other reasons for being here than worshiping Jesus. This guy was excited about this Christian community thing that they were a part of in their neighborhood. And he said that they were really living out the Christian community life that we see in Acts chapter 2. And he said that doesn't happen in most churches. And he even invited me to come to his house and meet some of his friends. And, you know, I was curious about this, and I'm into the Acts 2 church and Christian community, so I went. And it, it was pretty cool because... These families who who uh, were in this neighborhood really all kind of lived together and they did Bible studies a lot with each other and they were really in each other's lives in a deeper way than I'd ever experienced. But I still had this kind of uneasy feeling about the whole thing. I sensed a spiritual smugness and kind of an air of superiority that just didn't set well with me. Well, they continued to attend New Life for a while, but it soon became apparent that they had some ulterior motives for being here. They were here to recruit. Their plan was to befriend New Life families and then get them to come over to their little enclave and join up with them where real Christianity was being lived out. And that's what eventually happened with the the church member, his family, he and his wife. They said goodbye to us and they moved over there and became a part of that, despite our concerns. I think it was about five years later that the husband called me up and said that he'd left that group because it was deceptive and it was decimating his marriage. And he asked me to pray for him. And then he said, Pastor Steve, please warn the people not to be duped like I was. Well, there have always been and there will always be smug, arrogant, so-called Christian people who feel superior to others because of what they know or what they've experienced, or how they choose to live, and usually they don't mind making you feel inferior to them. They got something better. They do things the way Jesus would do them. They've had spiritual experiences that you haven't had. You should wake up and see the light and do what they're doing if you want to be spiritual like them. Well, that's the kind of spiritual intimidation that was happening to the believers in the Colossian church. And and it was coming at them from multiple sources. First, there were the Jewish legalists who were there. And they were telling, they were judging the spirituality of the people because they weren't giving enough attention to keeping the Old Testament regulations and laws. Then there were the Gnostics who were there claiming that everybody needed to seek a higher knowledge, a superior knowledge, more than what they had in Christ. And then there was a group of mystics who had infiltrated that church as well. And and they were looking down on these new Christians because they hadn't yet experienced uh, things that would transcend just their mundane, everyday existence and put them in touch with ultimate reality. 
And then there was another group called the ascetics. And they believed that to grow spiritually, you needed to subdue your flesh and beat your evil body into submission through extreme self-denial. And all of these things sounded really, really spiritual and were really intimidating. And so in this section that we're looking at this morning, Paul encourages the Colossian Christians to resist that intimidation and not be influenced by it. So let's see how he unfolds it. We'll begin in verse 16 of chapter 2. He begins like this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the first thing Paul is saying to this church and these believers is this, don't let other people guilt you into mixing law with grace. Now, what's the first word in verse 16? Therefore. And whenever you see a word therefore, you need to find out what it's therefore. Points us back to what Paul just wrote previously. Remember what we learned last week? Paul stressed the truth that believers are full and complete in Christ. Our salvation is complete. Our regeneration is complete. Our forgiveness and victory are all works of God done on our behalf, and they are complete. You can't add anything to them to make them any better. Therefore. Let no one pass judgment on you. Apparently what was going on is that the legalists with a Jewish background were looking down on these new Gentile Christians because they weren't observing old covenant Jewish rituals that had been prescribed. Now listen, if you try to mix law with grace, it ruins both of them. Remember that. Isn't that what Jesus taught in the parable of the wine and the wineskins? He said, if you take new wine and pour it into old, brittle wineskins, it's going to crack and it's going to ruin both the wine and the wineskins. And he was talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. You can't mix grace and law. You can't mix old covenant and new covenant without ruining both of them. Now, the Bible says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant given to Moses was about regulations and sacrifices and rituals and ceremonial observances. And God wanted those things in place for his people back then, the Jewish nation, because those things set them apart as his distinct, peculiar people. It it distinguished them from the nations surrounding them. There were dietary laws and festivals to be observed and sacrifices to be offered and such. But then in the plan of God... Jesus came. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. Jesus said, I came to fill out the law, to, to fulfill it. Everything about the Old Testament law pointed to Jesus Christ and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus became for us, for new covenant believers, our Passover meal. Jesus became our spiritual food and spiritual drink. Didn't he say, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water. Jesus became our eternal Sabbath rest in heaven. And Jesus has become our atoning sacrifice. As it says there in verse 17, those Old Testament observances were just shadows. Jesus is the substance that casts the shadow. Jesus both made the law 
and met the demands and requirements of the law for his people. And so new covenant believers are not under the law. We're not bound to observe all the ceremonies and sacrifices. And you should thank God for that because that was a heavy yoke under the law. This truth is restated over and over again in the New Testament, like in Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. About Galatians 3.23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So here's the lesson for us. You do not grow. You do not grow in your faith by religious rule keeping and ritual keeping. Did you know that? That's not how you grow. Our performance for God is not the basis for our salvation, nor is it the basis of our sanctification, our spiritual growth. It is all of grace. There are people who would like us to believe that obsessing over keeping religious rules is how you grow in Christ, but they are missing it. If someone seems to be evaluating your spirituality based on how well you are keeping their rules or even God's rules for another people in another era, they're off base. And so Paul, in effect, says this, don't let other people guilt you into mixing law with grace. Don't get pulled back into that exhausting performance-based system of works. Don't let smug, self-righteous Pharisee types make you feel guilty because you aren't doing the stuff they think you should be doing. Religious rule-keeping and rituals is not how you grow. So he's saying stand firm, stand your ground against that kind of spiritual intimidation and cling to grace. Get this? Cling to grace. But there's more. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Don't get DQ'd. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So the second thing Paul is saying is this. Don't let other people sway you away from God's path to spiritual growth. Don't listen to those people is what he's saying. Don't let them influence you. If you do, you'll end up forfeiting something that you want really badly. Notice that word disqualify. Let no one disqualify you. In the original language, that was a term from athletics as you can imagine, and it referred to a runner in a race swerving outside of his lane in the race and thus ending up being disqualified from winning the prize. Say, what's the prize that Paul refers to here? Well, I believe it's everything he's been talking about. I think the prize here is experiencing the fullness of life in Christ, everything he's been talking about, living that out. And he's saying, you're going to end up missing out on being satisfied in Christ if you allow yourself to be influenced by these spiritual intimidators. And that is so true. I've known so many people who got on the treadmill of religious performance and they ended up flaming out. They just couldn't pull it off. Couldn't do the stuff. 
Or else they felt like they were doing the stuff. And they're like, I'm doing it, you know. I'm pretty good. Either pride or despair. Now notice that Paul refers to some people who insisted on asceticism. I referred to this earlier. What is that? Well, this is the religion of rigorous self-denial. Asceticism is depriving your body of any and all pleasure and even inflicting pain on your body as the pathway to being holy and pleasing God. You can read stories of monks who did amazing things to try to be holy, rolling around in thorns and brambles, putting pins and, and darts in their chest. They would neglect their bodies and, and feel like that was holy. And so some of them, you know, never bathed. Of one monk, it was said he was so holy because the vermin were hanging off of his body. I mean, things that would make you cringe. Also, he talks here about worship of angels. And that was something that was also gaining popularity in that day. Is that a good thing? A spiritual thing to worship angels? You think? You know, the Bible actually forbids angel worship. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we're given an account of John, the apostle, bowing down before this spectacular creature. And the creature basically looks at him and says, Get up! Don't worship me! I'm just an angel! So even angels forbid angel worship. They know who's worthy. They know who's worthy to be worshipped. And so in the city of Colossae and in that church, there were these proud, smug people basically saying, we have arrived spiritually. We have ascended to the heights of holiness. We deny ourselves bodily pleasures. We worship angels. And we have these amazing visions of incredible things. Oh, you haven't? Oh, poor you. Maybe someday you could hope to possibly attain the level that we're at, if you're lucky. That was kind of the attitude, just a a superior smugness. And that's very intimidating when people are going on about their experiences and, and, you know, you're thinking, oh, I haven't had any visions like that. You know, what does that say about me? I must be really missing out on something here. And Paul basically says, look, don't be intimidated by those people. They're proud, pompous, and puffed up. They're super spiritual, but only in their own minds. He says in verse 19, they've actually lost connection with the head. They've timed out. They've logged out. They're not connected with God. Now look at what he says in verse 19 about how you really do grow spiritually. Three things. True spiritual growth comes from holding fast to the head. Do you see that? Who's the head? Jesus Christ, holding fast the head. It comes from being nourished by the head. And it comes from being knit together in the body of Christ. Now that's a whole seminar right there. That's like spiritual growth, 101 and 201. Show up at 9 a.m., get out at 4.30 p.m. It's a lot there. (laughs) Here's what Paul's saying. Here's how you grow. Spiritually, not by religious rule keeping, not by going back under the law, not by getting on the performance treadmill, not by worshiping some cool angel, not by inflicting pain on your body, not by seeking out some mystical vision or experience. Godly growth comes from staying connected to the head, Jesus Christ, from letting his life nourish your life, 
and from being knit together with the body, from actively participating in the body of Christ. There's some important lessons here, I think, for us. Listen, you don't grow spiritually beyond Jesus. You grow deeper into Jesus. You don't grow beyond Jesus and kind of leave him behind and go on to the good stuff. No, he is the good stuff. You grow deeper into him. And second, you don't grow in isolation from other people. You go th- grow through having a deeper connection with others. Being knit together, it says, like a fabric. That's how you grow. And so as a pastor, can I ask you this? Are you getting knitted in to this body of believers here? Is your life becoming more intertwined with the lives of some other believers in Jesus Christ who want to grow too? Are you becoming more connected here or less connected here? This is why we offer the the Discover New Life class every month, to help you grow spiritually by helping you get connected and knitted in to the body of Christ. It's why we constantly encourage you to the point of nagging to get in a small group to help you grow spiritually by seeing your life get interwoven with the lives of other people who want to grow too. Listen, isolation will kill your spiritual life. Isolation will kill your spiritual life. There's a family that's been coming back to new life. They were here, they left, they've come back. And uh, the wife said to me, you know what, we allowed ourselves to get isolated. Some things happened and we got ashamed and we started to pull away and withdraw and pull back and create distance and not let anybody in. And she said, it was horrible, that was so foolish. Isolation will kill your spiritual life. Some people think that you can stay connected to the head while disconnecting from his body. Does that make any sense? (laughs) We need to get knitted in. Some of you need to take some steps soon to get knitted in more deeply to the body of Christ here so you can grow with godly growth. Well, Paul has one more thing to say on this topic of resisting spiritual intimidation. Listen to verse 20. If Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, the basic principles of the world is the idea, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Underline that last phrase. We're going to come back to that. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here's a question for you. Oh, let me give you number three. Number three, don't be fooled into thinking that religious rule-keeping transforms the heart, the human heart. Because it doesn't. So here's a question. How do you keep a rebellious person from going crazy? (laughs) How do you keep a rebellious person with a licentious heart from just going off the deep end? Some people think, well, I know what you do. You just add more rules to them. That's the ticket. Yeah, that'll work. I'm just going to clamp down harder on them. Let me ask, does that work? 
Does adding rules cause a person's heart to soften and make them more compliant? Now listen, rules have their place. I'm not denying that. Societies need rules and laws to restrain evil behavior. Businesses, as you know, establish rules to improve efficiency and such. Families need some rules to establish acceptable standards of behavior. And God, of course, fills the Old Testament with rules and regulations. But listen, when it comes to spirituality and the advancement of the gospel in your life and deeper connection with Jesus, here's what I've come to believe. While law is good and necessary, it's also inadequate and impotent. Powerless. The law is good. Yes, Paul said that in Romans 7. God's law is good, but law by itself does not impart any desire or power to keep it. It doesn't. In fact, it often does just the opposite by actually provoking rebellion. And if you doubt that, just think about the posted speed limit signs on the highway, speed limit, 65, and you're driving out there and you're thinking, maybe, if I feel like it. Maybe on Wednesday I might drive 65 if I'm in a good mood. But I'm going to drive whatever speed I feel like driving. It's just in us. (laughs) Law provokes pride and rebellion. Now look at the list of rules that the ascetics were trying to impose on the Colossian Christians. See them? Do not handle. Do not taste. Don't eat that. Don't drink that. Do not touch. There was actually this thing where if you deem someone to be inferior to you, you are not to touch them. Notice that it says that rules like those have an appearance of wisdom. They sound spiritual. They sound holy. I'm in a small group, and uh, as we've been discussing these lessons each week, we've discovered that many of us in our small group grew up in church environments where our, our spirituality was evaluated by how well we kept the house rules. And the vast majority of the house rules were don'ts, stop it, don't do this, thou shalt not. I've listed a few of the ones that I grew up with. Thou shalt not go to any movies, any. Actually, it was usually worded like this, thou shalt not go to the movie theater. (laughs) Except for some reason, seeing Swiss Family Robinson was okay and Bambi If you're under 30, those were like movies from back in the day. Thou shalt not do any mixed swimming. Whatever that is. Thou shalt not, this is a big one, thou shalt not drink any alcohol. Bad. You're not a good Christian if you do that. Thou shalt not smoke cigarettes or anything else for that matter. Thou shalt not wear pants, presumably for women. (laughs) Thou shalt not grow your hair long and have facial hair, presumably for men. Thou shalt never under any circumstances dance. Don't be caught going to the dance halls. Thou shalt not ever miss church. And thou shalt not use any other version of the Bible than the one that Jesus himself used, the King James Version of the Bible. (laughs) I've had some people come up to me after services and give me some of the other ones. One I left out was, Thou shalt not play cards, because that would lead to gambling and so forth. Go fish, Uno, those that were okay. In those legalistic, performance-based environments, it was generally thought that if you were a good Christian, you were very careful to not do any of those things. And if you were caught doing any of them, 
were wanting to do any of them, you were toast. Your reputation in church took a big time hit. Can any of you relate at all to like this kind of environment growing up? It's interesting. It's been about half in each of the services. Listen, what I just described is just legalistic, performance-based, man-made religion. Many of us just need to detox a little from our church upbringing. Now, there were some good things too, right? I mean, in fairness, in our church upbringing, we were given some good things, and we need to thank God for that. But this side of things, it, it, it wasn't healthy. Religious rules and prohibitions sound so spiritual, but notice again this stunning statement that Paul makes at the end. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. They won't change the heart. Adding rules will not change the heart. Adding more rules will never squelch the want to in the heart. I've said it many times, I'm going to say it again. Spiritual growth in your Christian life and mine does not begin with behaving better. It begins with believing better. You know what I find? I find that when I focus all my energy and attention on trying to behave better and be good, I actually get worse. (laughs) Is that true of you? Or as a parent, when I focus all my energy on demanding that my kids behave better, it doesn't actually motivate them to want to behave any better. Now, lest you misunderstand me, God is concerned about my behavior as a Christian. Don't take me out of context. We're going to see this in chapters 3 and 4. But it's not incidental that chapters 1 and 2 precede chapters 3 and 4. It's critical to understanding what Christian behavior is all about and where it arises from. You see, the desire and the power to live obediently to Christ don't come from the rules. The desire and power to live obediently arises within the hearts of people who have tasted the unconditional grace of Christ. From people who get the gospel on a deep, deep level. Then you want to obey. You want to serve Christ. And His commands are not burdensome. They're a delight. Not an obligation. Not a duty. That could set you free. That's why the Bible declares that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It never says the law is the power of God unto salvation or the rules is the power of God unto salvation. It never says that. Law points us to our need for a savior, but law keeping and religious rules have no ability at all to save us from ourselves. None. The law just shows us, I need a savior. <laughs> I need someone to save me from Sin and self and the just condemnation of God. Let me just add this. Keeping all the rules is not the end goal anyway. Loving Jesus is. Loving Jesus is the end goal. You say, well, aren't they the same? I mean, keeping the rules, loving Jesus, aren't they the same? No. I know a lot of people who keep the rules and don't love Jesus. Do you? Yes, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But that was just a statement of fact. People who love Jesus keep his commandments. His commandments are a delight to them. Did you know that both rule-breaking and rule-keeping can keep you from Jesus? Did you know that? Remember the parable of the two lost sons? 
Which one was lost? Both. Both were lost. Both were lost. The rebel rule breaker, the prodigal was lost. And the religious rule keeper, the older brother, was lost. They were both lost. And thankfully the father reached out to both rebellious prodigals and religious older brothers and he calls both into his house. House, His grace extends to all. Thank God for the boundaryless grace of God in Christ. He loves rebels and he loves proud religious Pharisees. He wants all of them to come home. So let's review what we learned today. Paul calls believers, those believers in the first century and us today, to resist, to stand firm and resist being spiritually intimidated by people who think you need to add stuff to Jesus to be spiritual. Things like observing rituals and seeking after cool experiences, keeping the rules. Paul said we should not let other people guilt us into mixing in a little law with the grace that we received in Christ. We shouldn't let others sway us from the true pathway of growth, of diving deeper into Jesus and into his body. And we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that religious rule-keeping can ever or will ever transform our hearts. And so our preeminence principle for this weekend is this. Putting Jesus first involves living in the freedom of grace. Isn't that a great phrase? living in the freedom of grace and resisting those influences that seek to bring us back into bondage. Now, our 50-day emphasis is completed, but we're going to continue on in Colossians. And when we get to the first part of chapter 3, we're going to see Paul make a couple of statements there about the preeminence of Christ that I find to be extremely precious. In verse 3, he's going to say, Your life is hidden with Christ. And in verse 4, he's going to say, Christ is your life. For true believers, Jesus is becoming the essence of life itself. Life is becoming Jesus, and Jesus is becoming life. I know that's that's happening in me, and I know it's happening in many of your, your lives as well. Well, in two weeks, Easter weekend is going to be upon us, and... I wanted to open up an opportunity for you related to something that we're going to be doing on Easter weekend. Maybe you're here today and you are one to whom Jesus is becoming more and more the focus of your life. And if so, I want to give you an opportunity to encourage others along that same path. We're going to try to put together a video of new lifers who are experiencing this kind of transformation in your hearts where Jesus is becoming the primary focus of your life. You wouldn't be saying, I'm perfect, or I've arrived, or any of that, but you're saying, Jesus is becoming more and more central in my life, more and more my focus. If you decide to participate, you won't have to say anything, but simply express what Jesus means to you by writing a few words on a placard. And and what you would write would be a couple of words to complete each of these two sentences. I think they're on the back of your study notes there. The focus of my life was, dot, 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 a couple words, and the focus of my life now is Jesus. So, for example, if we were to use the content of today's sermon, here's what someone might write that would reflect that. The focus of my life was keeping the rules. 
That's what my life was all about, keeping the rules. Or maybe for you it was breaking the rules, or fixing everyone, or laying low, or whatever describes what the focus of your life was. But then you would give Jesus praise for his transformation in your life by saying, but now the focus of my life is Jesus. Jesus is becoming my life. He's becoming the centerpiece of who I am and what I'm all about. Get the idea? Okay. We will help you by giving you some ideas. We'd like to have about 30 or so people total. And so from this service, I need about 15 people from this in this room right now who'd be willing to volunteer for this and give the next 15 minutes or so and go and fill out their card. We've set up a room back in the back with tables and a, a bunch of placards like this and a bunch of those stinky pens, you know, that you, you write it out with. And um, we also have someone who will go with you, and then I'll be back in a few moments to kind of help explain things further, help you fill out your card. It's going to be really simple. And so I'm going to ask 15 people who would be willing to give a testimony for Jesus in this way um, to do that. So if you'd raise your hands... I need about 15. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count them out. One, two, three, four, five. Was that a six over there? Well, that was a baby crying. Okay, six, seven, eight. I better go over here. Nine, ten. Anybody else? Eleven, twelve. Way in the back, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. All right, awesome. Well, you fifteen, where did Sarah go? Sarah's right here. Sarah's our lady, Okay. If you would get up right now and go with Sarah, she's going to take you back to that room. I'll be back there in a couple minutes. And uh, she will help you kind of get settled in there and um, writing out your card, okay? Thank you. Thank you. I think God's going to use it on Easter weekend. The rest of us, I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you would. And we're going to respond, as is our custom, to the Word of God this morning. What we've heard, I want to ask a couple questions of you as you stand. Just thinking about what we just learned from Colossians. How many of you would say, I'm, real, I'm realizing that I need to be freed up a little bit more from my religious upbringing? Would you lift your hands? I need to be freed up a little bit more from my religious upbringing. It was all about keeping the rules and looking good and all that. Yeah. There may be some of you here who would say, well, you know what? I think actually I might be one of those who's guilty of looking down on others and, you know, judging them, evaluating them by how well they keep my rules. And I was thinking about asking you to raise your hands, but of course you wouldn't, you know. (laughs) How about this one? Parents, as a parent, I need God's help and wisdom to raise my kids to really love Jesus and not just be good on the outside. Any parents? would say that. Yeah, many, many of us. Well, you know what? In these next few moments, we're going to worship God through song. Our prayer partners are going to be available on each side over here if you guys would take your spot. And I want to encourage you, if, if any of these things are true of you, come and let a prayer partner pray God's wisdom in your life as a parent, that God would help you to know what to do. Sometimes we just don't know what to do, huh? Let God, or let one of them pray that God would give you his grace and freedom from the shackles of your past. 
Maybe God's stirring up in you that it's, he's drawing you to Jesus Christ and, and you need to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Come and let someone guide you into what that means by sharing the gospel with you. So let's respond to God's word together and let's worship him.